This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by GSK US Oncology, which has a mission to deliver transformative medicines and programs that provide enduring impact and hope for patients and their loved ones. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Oncologist Ezekiel Emanuel and Otis Brawley join Washington Post Live to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on cancer, lessons learned, and how the vaccine has not protected some immunocompromised patients as hoped. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Yasmin Abutalib, a health policy reporter here at The Post. Welcome to our program, Chasing Cancer. Today, we're talking about getting back to in-person care after the pandemic. My first guest today is Dr. Zeke Emanuel, Vice Provost for Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Emanuel, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Nice to be here with you. Um, So I wanna start today by talking about the impact that the pandemic has had on people with cancer. We interviewed National Cancer Institute's director, Ned Sharpless, last month, and he said there was a 95% decline in cancer screenings. Um, In your view, what has been the impact on cancer screenings and also on diagnosis and outcomes as a result of the pandemic? Well, I think uh, it's very important to break up the pandemic into timeframes. And uh, one of the things that uh, all the research has showed, and we really have research from millions of people uh, in Blue Cross and Blue Shield and Medicare Advantage. And it shows, uh, as uh, Dr. Sharpless pointed out, a rapid decline in screening tests for cancer, whether they're mammography or colon cancer. Um, And that decline is concentrated though in about two and a half or three months, March, April, May, 2020. And then you see a rapid rebound And importantly, for the screening tests, that is people who don't have, say, a breast nodule or don't have evidence of colorectal cancer and are simply getting a colonoscopy, uh, the screening tests don't come back to normal, really. They come back to, you know, maybe 15% uh, less than uh, previous years. Uh, And that is a worry. Uh, But uh, for many other things, like diagnostic testing with mammography or colon Uh, colonoscopy or prostate cancer, where you actually have a reason to suspect there's something abnormal, that comes back very rapidly in May of 2020 and has stayed there. Um, And we've also seen that uh, uh, actually since May of 2020, despite the winter surge in COVID, uh, uh, basically the same level of interaction uh, of cancer patients. So it was really concentrated in the March, April, May 2020 time period where we had this rapid decline in screening tests. When we spoke with Dr. Sharpless, he said that excess deaths uh, from delayed cancer screenings could be more than 10,000. And then when we interviewed him this year, he said it could be more than that. So do you think that the impact of delayed screenings on mortality is going to be significant? What do you think it, it looks like for the next five years? Well, let's be frank, I'm not a modeler. I do think it'll be uh, high. I don't think it's gonna be as high as people think because I think a lot of those projections were based upon the declines we saw, again, in those few months and not the return uh, to normal. I think uh, we'll probably have thousands of cancer patients 
uh, with advanced disease that probably at some point might have been curable and unfortunately because of delayed diagnosis uh, may uh, have more advanced disease that isn't curable and that would be tragic. Uh, the exact numbers I think are actually going to be slightly lower than uh, most people anticipate. Uh, 10,000 sounds like a pretty accurate number to me. We need to remember, uh, you know, each year uh, 600,000 plus Americans die of cancer. It's still a very, very deadly disease. Um, so 10,000 is a large number, but in the context of total cancer mortality, uh, we're talking about one to two percent. Um, we there hasn't been a lot of good news in this pandemic, but we've obviously witnessed a huge medical achievement with the development of the vaccines in record time, and particularly the mRNA vaccines. But for people who are immunocompromised, they sometimes don't mount antibodies in response to the vaccines, or they don't mount a full immune response. So what can you tell us about how the vaccines work in people who are undergoing cancer treatment, or even... I'm sorry, even survivors who may be immunocompromised and get vaccinated. Well, first, can I back up for a second before I answer that direct question, which I think is a vitally important question. Um, Please. We have, to re we have to remember that COVID has disproportionately impacted cancer patients. For the general public, uh, if you get COVID, you know, your chance of hospitalization is something like 25, was something like 25%. Um, but uh, cancer patients, it was much higher, and the chance of mortality with COVID, the combination of COVID and cancer, was pretty deadly, um, uh, about three times, uh, two or three times the mortality rate of the general public. So we know already uh, cancer patients were at a disadvantage because of their compromised immune status, um, and COVID was uh, uh, much worse for them. So any benefit from the vaccines would be really, really important. Now, we have known for a long time that cancer patients do not necessarily mount the same kind of response to vaccines, uh, and it's not just limited to mRNA vaccines or COVID vaccines. It's true for all the vaccines that we uh, get, might want to give them. Uh, and the problem is that uh, you know we disrupt the immune system, both with our treatments and the cancer uh, disrupts the immune system uh, to evade the immune system and uh, grow in the body. And that combination seems to undermine uh, a response to the vaccines. Now, the big issue uh, being discussed and debated, and we need more data on it, is how well does a third booster, for example, help immunocompromised people? So on the typical mRNA uh, vaccine giving a, a initial shot, then one booster, and maybe a third booster a couple of months after will increase the level of antibodies and uh, T cells necessary to more effectively fight the vaccine. Frankly, uh, that appears to be true, but how much better, how long the durability is, we don't know. We do have some uh, uh, growing evidence uh, that the level of neutralizing antibody is a very important indicator of uh, uh, avoiding uh, reinfections if you have the vaccine. So I think we have a way of monitoring whether cancer patients are protected and whether they need to take additional precautions, uh, mask wearing, avoiding uh, crowds, avoiding the public, uh, if their body hasn't responded with uh, suitable antibodies. 
Well, that was actually going to be my next question is whether you would recommend booster shots for this population. Maybe we don't know enough yet. I've, I've covered the issue a little bit and know there are still lots of questions about it. Um, and you, well, you you're, the it with... <laughs> you're the I'm expert. You're the expert. If you oh, cover no, it, no, 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 you are. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, I, I have to say I'm a little disappointed um, in what we've been doing in the United States in terms of research uh, and producing research. Uh, we have 163 million Americans vaccinated uh, with these uh, coronavirus vaccines. And we know we should be ha sitting on mountains of data um, about how they react, um, good follow-up in cancer patients, other immunocompromised patients, organ transplant patients, or rheumatoid arthritis patients taking uh, uh, some uh, uh, immune modulating medications. We just haven't uh, don't have enough data. And I think we would all like data, like are there particular genotypes that respond better or compromise? And so giving them a booster isn't necessarily going to help them that much. Uh, is there something besides the uh, mRNAs that we can give can, to boost the immune response of these immunocompromised patients? Uh, I think those are questions we'd love to have the answers to. And I think, you know, we're far from a definitive answer uh, and guidance there. And so we're doing, you know, ma making suggestions without uh, real uh, reliable data. And that, I think, is an uncomfortable position for any doctor to be in. Absolutely. I mean, I know there's there's a lot of frustration among experts across medical fields about the lack of data on, on lots of aspects of the pandemic. Um, I, I want to stay with this for a second because obviously getting back to in-person care is, is a crucially important part of cancer care. But now we have the surge of the Delta variant um, and, and concern about that being transmitted to immunocompromised patients when they come in for care. You, of course, saw this extraordinary call from the medical associations for vaccine mandates for healthcare workers. But what do you think cancer care looks like over the next year or so as we're battling these these very worrying new variants? And is there something like a, a hybrid model adopted with some combination of consultation and in-person care? I'm, I'm just curious what you think what this next year might look like for these patients. Well, I definitely think one of the consequences of coronavirus uh, pandemic and the need to shift out of uh, facility-based care is that more care is going to happen in the house. Uh, with uh, better technology, uh, we can do more in the house. We can do better at monitoring patients regularly in a house. Um, we've pioneered at the University of Pennsylvania at-home chemotherapy uh, for cancer patients. Uh, so I think a large part of what we do can be shifted out of the facilities, out of uh, cancer centers to the home, monitoring patients, getting blood work done, administering chemotherapy all at the home, I think is a very positive sign. And I think we'll see that kind of shift uh, increasing uh, because it's better for the patients uh, and uh, in part to avoid variants or avoid infections in the hospital. Um, and I think it can be uh, just very effective to be in your own surroundings. I think most of us, rather than going to an institution, would rather be in our own bed or our own couch uh, getting care rather than uh, having to travel back and forth and, and such. So I see an increase of that. And again, 
important to test. What do we need to make sure it's high quality, make sure it's equivalent? There's obviously certain things you cannot do at home. Uh, administer radi uh, radiation therapy for cancer patients, do surgical procedures. Those are still going to require coming into hospitals. One of the things I think may be happening uh, because of COVID, and we have some evidence in some of the data we've seen, is um, a selective decline in marginal surgical procedures for cancer patients. Uh, biopsies that didn't necessarily need to happen, other surgical procedures that may have been marginal, not essential. You actually see in March and April and continuing a very large decline in surgical oncology. And uh, I think part of that may be uh, biopsies that were, man, we really didn't need to do it and were scratched. Uh, part of that may be other, you know, putting in uh, certain lines that were marginally necessary. Um, and so I think uh, hopefully one of the positives of COVID will be uh, that we eliminate the unnecessary duplicative uh, ineffective care and really concentrate and, and shift to home care, uh, those things which are really necessary. That would be a positive outcome from uh, this rapid need to go to a hybrid model. Yeah, that seems like something that would be welcomed by patients, any, any less time they can spend in the hospital for their care. Um, President Biden it has said he's committed to ending cancer as we know it. And I, I wanna know from an oncologist point of view, what does that mean for the future of cancer research and treatment, especially when so many resources right now are rightly so dedicated to fighting the pandemic? And it does look like we're entering this new worrying phase of the pandemic. So there are some questions about when we, we may start to come out of this. <laughs> so I, I, I think let's play out two scenarios. One scenario, uh, which I think is the more likely scenario, is we really do get a handle on COVID over the remaining part of 2021 and 2022. And we are sort of back to full normal in uh, the end of 2022 and 2023. By that, I mean not just the United States, but the world. Remember, Delta variant didn't arise in the United States. It arose uh, uh, in other countries and then came into the United States. So this really is a whole world problem. We have to address this worldwide. And so 2022, I think we'll have you know, more than enough vaccine. Uh, we'll have mobilized the administration. And I do think uh, we could probably get back to normal. Um, and then uh, I know that the president is very, very focused on wanting to really uh, up our game in cancer, uh, develop new interventions, rapidly test them, the ones that work, rapidly introduce them into mainstream care, the ones that don't work, get them off so we're not wasting money and effort on uh, things that aren't effective. Um, and I think we're gonna new, need some new models of rapid uh, collaborative research um, and rapid testing, rapid failing. Um, and I think he's very committed to having that happen. It's hard to, as you point out, very, very uh, presciently, it's hard to focus on that when so much of our attention rightly is on COVID. But once we can get past COVID, focusing on that, I think, becomes quite reasonable. And I think it will be a high priority for uh, the NIH uh, and others, the FDA uh, um, and other uh, parts of the healthcare system you know, academic health centers that do research, et cetera. So I think that's the more likely scenario. On the other hand, if God forbid, 
Um, it's really hard to get out of COVID. New variants come up. They're very, very transmissible. Um, they evade uh, these vaccines. Um, that obviously is going to have to be put on the uh, beating cancer is going to have to be put on the back burner. There's just, uh, it, you know, for all its uh, deadliness, for all its burdens, um, cancer uh, doesn't freeze the economy. On the other hand, you know, another really uh, terribly transmissible, terribly deadly coronavirus variant would freeze the economy and would command a lot of attention and resources. And so I think those are the two scenarios I see. As I said, I think the more plausible scenario is we get our arms around co coronavirus globally in 2022, and then we can uh, go back to the president's top priority of uh, battling cancer and really uh, uh, winning the war on cancer. I mean, we should, well, you know, oh. I, th I think anyone who, who's been in this field, and you know, and I'm a youngster compared to, to many uh, people, but anyone who's been in the field, and I've been in it since uh, 1990 when I started my fellowship at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, you know, the kind of progress we've made is just mind boggling. Um, and, you know, the idea that, I remember very early on, a lot of my chronic myelogenous leukemia patients, you know, and it was really a horrible situation because you would have to tell them, you know, at some point this is going to blast off. You're going to, you know, transform and we're into acute leukemia and we're not going to be able to really do much for you. And the chemotherapies really don't work in that circumstance. And then miraculously through targeted therapies, you know, no one dies of CML. People, you know, live a normal life. It's a chronic condition and they take a pill. That is, you know, nothing short of amazing and uh, miraculous. Um, and we've, you know, with CAR-T therapies developed at my own University of Pennsylvania, you know, we have another case of really, you know, bringing people back from tumors that we thought were like, you know, death sentences. It's totally amazing what we've been able to do. And I think the potential progress in cancer, you know, when people talk about the idea of, you know, putting cancer behind us, it, you know, no longer seems so funny. And that's a transformation in 30 years, which is, you know, a blink of an eyelash when you uh, think about it. Um, and so I, I do think uh, the potential is truly amazing uh, for innovations. But again, you know, I just go back to something I said, we really need uh, to differentiate the innovations that are really making progress from innovations that aren't making progress and uh, stop doing those things because they're not helping anyone. They're wasting resources and diverting uh, the important attention of people. So in the two minutes that we have left, I want to get your reaction to the big news of this week, which is that the CDC changed its mask guidance yesterday to recommend that people in substantial and high transmission areas, vaccinated people wear masks indoors in public spaces. Uh, they also said, official health officials said that they had data showing that vaccinated individuals who get breakthrough infections have viral loads that are the same as unvaccinated individuals, although they are far less likely to get sick. So what's your reaction to the guidance? How do you think the CDC handled this? And where do you think we are as a country at this point in the pandemic? So I will tell you, uh, Yasmin, uh, first of all, personally, uh, I never stop wearing a mask. Uh, I literally, uh, today is Wednesday. I think uh, Saturday, I got my reuptake of my N95 masks. Uh, 50 of them came in the mail um, because I didn't stop. I've always worn, and I'm vaccinated, just to be clear. I've always worn a mask 
when I go indoors to the grocery store or indoors to a pharmacy or the post office. I also wear my mask when I go outdoors and there are crowds, uh, you know, farmers markets or uh, very crowded streets and people are walking around. Uh, I put my mask on. I don't wear my mask, you know, when I go bike riding or when I walk in the park or when I walk down the street and there just aren't any people or you're just passing one or two people and you can uh, uh, put a wide swath between you and them. I think that's the right answer. Um, I think the CDC's guidance, um, as David Leonhardt uh, pointed out this morning, is it's a little confusing to the average layman. It says in high transmission areas and, you know, requires you then to go and look at the map or go and look at what is a high transmission area? Do I live in that? If I go from where I am to a high transmission area, say over a county line. Um, so I, I just think common sense says two things. You're going indoors, you're going into crowded, even outdoor areas, wear a mask. That's not asking you to wear a mask eight hours a day, all day long in hot and humid weather. It is for defined periods of time. Um, wear a good mask, upgrade your mask to a NIOSH approved N95 mask. There are plenty of them that are made in the United States. They're not expensive and use them well. I think, you know, we're, we're focused on masking. I think we also need to be focused on high quality masks that fit your face really well. And I noticed that uh, uh, there are uh, various sites where you can also look and see high quality cloth man, uh, masks um, if the N95 is for some reason not something you can wear because of allergies or other problems. Well, Dr. Emanuel, thank you so much for joining us. It's unfortunately all the time that we have for today, but I really enjoyed this conversation and I will have to call you to ask you more about all of this. Well, Yasmin, your reporting is fantastic. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored. Thank you. Please stay with us. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Dr. Otis Brawley. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello everyone, it's Zainab Selvi. I am your moderator today. The pandemic showed us how in particular women and communities of color with health and economic challenges were impacted disproportionately by the pandemic and experienced worsening uh, health conditions due to delayed or missed healthcare services. Today, We'll discuss how cancer care must evolve and improve as we move out of the pandemic. And I have the privilege of being in conversation with Michael Petrusis, Senior Vice President of the GSK US Oncology Business Unit, and Shannon Miller, seven-time Olympic medalist, ovarian cancer survivor, and our way forward advocate. Welcome to both of you. Allow me to start with you, Michael. Um, I'm wondering, according to the data you have seen, how did COVID-19 impact cancer care overall? Thank you, Zainab, and I, I wanna start by first of all, thanking you for having us here today and tell you what a privilege it is to be able to speak with you on such an important topic um, and speak with you with not only a cancer survivor, a great patient advocate, and really an amazing partner for us at GSK Oncology with Shannon Miller. So to answer your question, um, I can tell you that I'm sure, as you know, with the beginning of the pandemic, we saw a big decline in terms of physician visits, wellness visits, and cancer screenings. In fact, I can tell you that 
even with vaccinations, we saw an improvement. But as recently as this past February, we polled physicians and we heard that 55% of medical oncologists are still seeing lower cancer diagnoses versus baseline of April 2020. And with that, what we're also hearing is that 47% of medical oncologists are seeing less chemotherapy use, and even more so, 77% are reporting delays in surgeries. So you can see the trickle-down effect the pandemic is having to cancer care. And we've made such great progress on improving the five-year overall survival for many cancers. So we can't afford for COVID to derail us. It's so true. It's so true, actually. And what are the learnings from the pandemic about how cancer care needs to change, Michael? A lot of great learnings and great question. First thing we've seen is that there's a disproportionate impact with regards to our communities of color and women. Women through the pandemic have picked up many additional responsibilities, assuming childcare or additional childcare, home care, and, and things that have really come at the expense of their well-being. And specifically, what we saw is that 90% of women actually missed their mammogram appointments last November. In fact, what we're hearing today is that one out of three women have either delayed or canceled their sexual or reproductive wellness visit. So the impact is actually there. In fact, I can also tell you with, through a lot of our communities that we're actually seeing and hearing that there's also a disproportionate impact with regards to the care that's being received. So if we see the impact COVID has had and potentially the delay in diagnosis, that will likely lead to a worse prognosis. So we need to make sure we change and continue to disrupt what we do to provide the best possible resources to not only support our community, but also the potential emotional impact that they will have. And with that said, what we're trying to do is really treat patients as people first. And I'm truly privileged to introduce Shannon Miller that can give her perspective not only as a patient, but share with us what maybe our patients may be feeling. Well, thank you, Michael, Zainab. Thank you to all of you watching. My cancer story began when I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer following a routine women's exam. I didn't even realize at the time that I was experiencing three of the four primary symptoms. I had uh, bloating, stomach aches, some weight loss, I had just attributed those changes to changes in my body after having my son or regular women's issues. I went in for this exam, one that I almost canceled because like everyone else, I was just too busy. But as an advocate for health and wellness, I thought better of it. I knew I needed to walk the walk and make it a priority. And I think this is the experience for so many people, especially women and particularly during the pandemic. For many, it's felt as if there's just no time for self-care, like annual checkups and screenings. There might be fear of going to the doctor's office, fear of getting bad news. I think there are plenty of reasons why we skip our appointments. I know that we want to do it all, and we often have a tendency to put everyone else first, prioritizing the care of others over our own, but we need to make our health a priority. And remember that it's not a selfish act. Making your health a priority helps you to be there for all of those that depend on you. I think we all understand the importance of prioritizing our healthcare appointments. And we also know that we have to be our own best health advocates. 
It's so true. Uh, Shannon, you inspired me to make my appointment today, actually, thanks to you and Michael. And before I go back to you, Shannon, I want to ask Michael, has GSK made any changes in response to pandemic learnings to improve cancer care? Absolutely. And I think what the pandemic has done is shown us the power of science. And it's that power of science that's helping us get back to normal and really reignited our focus with regards to really delivering on our mission and bringing these transformative medicines to our patients. So what we're trying to do is listen more, be more human, be more compassionate, and make sure that our programs reflect that to make sure that we support our patients, make sure that we work at pace, bring the right educational programs, as well as the forums in which we need to support our patients. Public health depends on us. So true. Beautiful. Beautifully said, actually. How about technologies? Are there any new technologies that will help support these changes in the future? Absolutely. We see in research and development, there's technological advances in artificial intelligence that will help bring both our communities and the patients we serve, both in our studies as well as our research. We're also seeing a lot of technical, technological advances with regards to the programs as well as the educational resources uh, that we need to bring forward. So with that, I'd like to share with you uh, one of the programs which was highlighted earlier, which was Our Way Forward, which we worked with Shannon and many others on, which is really bringing through unique patient stories, really great educational tools and support for our patients through this time. Thank you, Michael. Shannon, before we wrap up, I'd love to have you talk about what are, what have you heard from women in the last year? Well, since the pandemic began, I, I've had the great privilege of speaking to many women in various stages of their cancer experience, and I'm always so amazed by their strength and resilience, especially as they face cancer during a time that has been so incredibly isolating. And I just continue to be inspired by them. It constantly reinforces the work I do advocating for women's health. And I think my time here today is part of that responsibility that I feel to help people understand the symptoms of ovarian cancer, certainly, but also to remind them to listen to their bodies and empower them to go to the doctor when something just feels off. And of course, to keep up with the regular screenings and appointments so that health issues have an opportunity to be caught early. As we uh, look to the future, I hope that programs like Our Way Forward continue. It is so important to continue to have that education, the support resources, and that sense of community, not only for the women experiencing ovarian cancer, but also the care partners that are by their side every day. It is critical for women to know that they are not alone. And Michael, to echo what you've said, getting back to normal cancer care isn't enough. People with cancer, uh, their care partners, families, communities, they need more. They need more support, more resources, and we all can use more hope. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And to learn more about getting back to care, please visit us.gsk.com backslash oncology. And thank you again. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Yasmina Boutalib, a health policy reporter here at The Post. I wanna now bring in Dr. Otis Brawley, a distinguished professor, uh, sorry, I don't wanna get your title wrong, a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Brawley, welcome back to Washington Post Live. 
So I want to pick up on an earlier conversation I was having with Dr. Zeke Emanuel about getting back to in-person care. There were, of course, huge disruptions to cancer care during the pandemic. And I want to know what you think is the way forward and where we're at right now with the rise of the Delta variant and concerns about the Lambda variant and other ones that may come uh, as more people continue to get infected. Yeah, well, the National Cancer Institute estimated that we're going to lose about 10,000 people up to the year 2030 because of the shutdown in treatment that occurred in March, April, and May of last year. Uh, some people have attributed this to screening dropping off, but it was really the shutdown in treatment of people who already had cancer. Many of our screening recommendations, for example, in breast cancer, it's every one to two years. In colon cancer with colonoscopy, it's every 10 years. Uh, we weren't really super worried about the depression in screening just last year. But as this goes longer and longer, we're going to start worrying more that that's going to have some type of an impact on our statistics. I think it can still, we can still have a system where it does not have um, a tremendous impact on our overall long-term statistics. And that being said, keep in mind, uh, I've done studies to show that of the 600,000 people who die every year from cancer currently, 130 would not die if everyone had the prevention, appropriate screening, appropriate diagnostics, and appropriate treatment that every human being should get. It's our concern that the coronavirus epidemic or pandemic is going to make treatment worse and worsen those numbers. Leading medical groups right now are calling for mandatory vaccinations for healthcare workers, because the reality is that there are a lot of healthcare workers who are still vaccine hesitant. If you're a cancer patient right now, what is the risk of going in for in-person care given some workers may not be vaccinated? And also because the, vac the coronavirus vaccines may not be as effective in immunocompromised patients. You know, we talked earlier about how some patients are just unable to mount a full or very robust immune response uh, in response to the vaccines. Well, Yasmin, the people who are at most risk of having a bad outcome from coronavirus are the people who are immunosuppressed. Those are cancer patients, patients with certain uh, rheumatologic illnesses, certain immunosuppressive illnesses as well. Uh, we need to protect those people at all costs. Uh, quite honestly, the coronavirus vaccines have uh, prevented 280,000 to 300,000 deaths in the United States since January 1. Uh, that means that they are the most effective drug ever developed. I don't use that phrase lightly. Uh, we do need to try to protect people who uh, cannot respond to the coronavirus vaccine because of illness or problems in their immune system. And so I, I really do think that all of us in healthcare need to be vaccinated. We need to try uh, to maintain hospitals and clinics such that uh, people don't get the disease here. Now going to things like telemedicine and other things and trying to keep patients who don't need to come into the clinic or to the doctor's office, out of the doctor's office, that's another means of trying to protect them. And just just building on, you know, you talking about how miraculous these vaccines have been in, in many ways, I want to ask you, especially with your uh, past experience as president of a major medical group, the American Cancer Society, 
whether you agree or disagree that vaccinations should be mandatory for all healthcare workers. Well, I was chief medical officer of the American Cancer Society. I actually do believe that uh, vaccination should be mandatory, not just for all healthcare workers. I think it should be mandatory, just like measles, mumps, and rubella, uh, diphtheria, pertussis, and uh, other vaccines are in the United States. I think there, there's literally no one that I can think of uh, who is over the age of 12 who does not qualify for this vaccine and should not be getting this vaccine. So if you look back at the beginning of the pandemic before there were vaccines, telehealth became a, a, a crucially important tool um, in keeping people out of doctor's offices and, and lowering the risk when it wasn't necessary. So, I mean, what do you think of the, the advent and the increased use of telehealth um, when it comes to cancer care? What are the pros and cons? And do you think that there might be more use of it going forward? Do you think that there are some permanent changes to the way we treat cancer because of the pandemic? There are some permanent changes in how we treat cancer because of the pandemic. Some of them are actually very good. Uh, you know, I see patients and some of my patients travel three, four, five hours by car to get to see me. Some fly in the night before and stay in hotels. Some of those visits can actually be done by telemedicine. They don't have to physically be in front of me. And uh, we're adjusting our systems to adapt to that. Uh, some people do need to come into the doctor still in order to get radiation or to get certain chemotherapies. The physical exam is still going to be important in certain patients. But uh, telehealth is going to be uh, at least 20-25% of medical oncology going forth. Uh, that may very well be one of the more convenient good things that came out of this pandemic. And do you think that there were other changes uh, made as a result of the pandemic as a necessity that you think are here to stay? You know, the uh, federal government and some of the states have lowered some of the licensure requirements. Uh, doctors used to not be able to do telehealth if they were in one state and the patient was in another state that they weren't licensed in. Uh, it looks like uh, some of the uh, states are lessening their requirements for that to allow for medicine. So yes, there's some improvements and it's, it's forcing everybody to get along. And I should also point out our technologies sort of peaked at, at the right time, not just for the mRNA vaccine and development of that treatment, but our technologies in terms of the use of computers and use of uh, the internet for telemedicine health visits, the use of uh, various uh, things for medical monitoring, even certain things like the Apple Watch, which allows for certain medical monitoring and other uh, uh, electronics that have been developed that allow people to uh, get certain aspects of the physical exam that might be important to them in their household. And I think a lot of that will lead to um, my next question. I want to I want to talk a little bit about disparities because that's obviously been one of the major things we've seen through this pandemic is just disparities exacerbated. So uh, telehealth, as you mentioned, made it possible for lots of people to get access to care when maybe they otherwise couldn't, including in rural communities for people where there might be issues with access to transportation or, or whatever it might be. So we obviously saw with the pandemic that there were huge gaps in the healthcare system. Them, and so much of the care that you received depended on where you lived. Do you think that those same gaps exist in cancer care? Yes, absolutely. And by the way, 
Uh, one basic rule of medicine, and uh, those of us who do epidemiology and outcome studies, is whenever there is an advancement or an improvement in treatment, there are going to be, uh, there are going to be initially disparities. There are going to be people who get that new improvement and people who don't get it and disparities in outcome. And that's true with telemedicine. I am very concerned about areas of the United States that do not have adequate broadband. I'm very concerned about households in the United States that don't have a computer and don't have access to healthcare because of the computer. Uh, we're going to have to try to develop programs. Perhaps they'll involve navigation and home health uh, providers who might actually bring a computer with them uh, and uh, for the home health visit. Uh, we're going to have to pay attention to that. You're absolutely right. You know, uh, some people just learned that the disparities in the last year and this this pandemic, unfortunately, was the perfect storm for uh, showing that disparities exist because people who are poor are the folks who suffer from disparities. By the way, when we talk about disparities, it's not a racial issue. Indeed, uh, when I said 130,000 to 600,000 deaths that occur every year are disparate deaths, they could have been prevented. 80,000 of those are in white people. And usually the 130,000 do tend to be poorer Americans. But uh, we need to try to develop programs to overcome some of these disparities. If I might put a word in for prevention, uh, we also need to try to change our lifestyle so that we can prevent some of these cancers uh, in addition to, uh, or I should say, risk reduction. Uh, we need to change lifestyle so we reduce our risk of getting some of these cancers, as well as try to get adequate screening, diagnosis, and treatment to all Americans. Well, and I think one of the places where the disparities was clearest was in life expectancy data that we recently got from the federal government. It dropped a year and a half across the board, but it was far worse for African Americans and Latinos. And these same disparities exist in cancer mortality. So, I mean, what you, you addressed this, but what's at the heart of these inequities? And, and you talked about prevention. What are some of the ways that we can address them and start to fix them? Yeah, the, 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 well, the easiest way to address them is uh, let's look at tobacco usage. Uh, you know, tobacco is something that we can all do without. And if we didn't have tobacco, we would have, lose uh, uh, probably 20%, 25% of all cancer deaths would eventually go away if there were no tobacco. Next thing we need to look at is energy imbalance. That's the combination of uh, people eating too many calories, storing in as obesity, and not getting enough exercise. It's really a three-legged stool. It's not just obesity. Uh, energy imbalance is the cause of 25 to 30% of all cancers. We need to, now I don't want to blame anyone who has cancer. We need to actually change lifestyle in the United States so that we adopt more healthy behaviors and it's more enforcing of behaviors that prevent, by the way, not just cancer, but diabetes and cardiovascular disease as well. Uh, and unfortunately, there's an educational gradient where people who are less educated are more likely to have these health behaviors that cause many of these diseases. Again, I don't want to blame the patient. I want to blame society because these are all cultural things that we've all not walking, using cars, uh, eating lots of processed foods that are very calorie dense, uh, not exercising, as well as 
Okay. And we've talked a lot today about delayed screenings and the impact of that. Do you think that that's going to further exacerbate the disparities that we've been talking about? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, screening does work when it's done appropriately, and screening is appropriate for most people in certain age groups. And again, the people who will get the screening will be our middle class and upper middle class, more educated. The people who are not going to get the appropriate screening are going to be poor folks or folks who live in areas that uh, don't where they don't have access to care. So I'm, I'm concerned that the pandemic is going to exacerbate many of these disparities in cancer, cardiovascular disease and diabetes as well. You know, we've talked a lot about how the pandemic has killed a lot of our disparate population, people who live in rural areas, people who are socioeconomically poor. Uh, but I do think that the next wave after the pandemic is going to be in uh, a wave of increased mortality uh, in especially the chronic diseases, cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. Well, it's hugely important to anticipate what could be coming and, and what we can do about it. But I do want to end on a positive note for these last few minutes that we have. Obviously, the, the big achievement of the pandemic was the, the breakthrough technology in, in creating the mRNA vaccines and, of course, in record speed. And there are some experts that think that this could be applied to cancer care. So can yeah. you just walk us through that a little bit and help us understand how it might apply and, and why some experts think there, there could be big advancements in cancer care yeah. because of these vaccines? Yeah, I want to correct one thing. There's this perception that this vaccine was created very quickly. Uh, this vaccine was created due to technologies that actually came through cancer research over the last 50 years. It actually starts with Richard Nixon signing the National Cancer Act in 1971. And we've had messenger RNA vaccines for over 20 years involved in cancer research. And then very quickly last year, they took all of that technology and turned it into coronavirus and developed the coronavirus vaccine. So the research has been going on for in, in some instances, 40 to 50 years in certain areas. But we do hope that we're gonna be able to take messenger RNA and actually program it to a individual patient's specific cancer. These are, these are, this is real true precision medicine where each vaccine may very well be tailored to that particular patient's molecular biology. And we may be able to treat some cancers with mRNA vaccines through this process. That's the hope. And uh, now we started doing this research about 20 years ago with messenger RNA vaccine, vaccine technology, and it's getting better and better. And it actually is starting to be tested in some patients with cancer, ironically, at the same time that messenger RNA vaccine is saving so many lives with coronavirus. Well, I take your point that it was not overnight and that this research has been going on for a long time. So to that point, I, I want to know, do you think that cancer vaccines could be possible in our lifetime? I think cancer vaccines are going to be widely available in our lifetime and they are going to be effective. 
I cannot promise you that they're going to be as effective as the mRNA vaccine for coronavirus, but I do believe they will be available, and I do believe that they will be effective in the treatment of several of the major cancers out there. I think there's tremendous reason for optimism, and this whole story tells us that we really do need to support scientific research and scientific progress. This is a, an appeal to continue supporting uh, the National Institutes of Health, who's given us so many of these things. And in our last two minutes, I want to ask you, are there new technologies or breakthroughs that you're particularly excited about, or even treatments that are on the horizon that you think really could, could make a big change in cancer care? Well, certainly, uh, Zeke mentioned the CAR T-cell technology, and that's certainly incredibly exciting for treatment of cancer. Uh, our continued understanding of what is cancer and what causes cancer leads me to focus a great deal, again, on cancer prevention, risk reduction, and implementation of the things that actually can keep people from getting cancer to begin with. We're going to start learning more about uh, blood tests, for screening and diagnosis, and that's going to help us a great deal with early detection. We may get away from the mammogram. We may get away from x-ray imaging for screening and actually have a blood test looking for DNA markers in the blood and be able to say, you have an early breast cancer. Now let's go find it and treat it. This easier, it may make screening more decentralized, and it may help us overcome disparities. But it's easier to draw blood in rural America than it is to get a CT scan out into rural America. Well, we're unfortunately out of time, but Dr. Otis Brawley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. To find out more about our upcoming interviews, head to WashingtonPostLive.com. You can register and find out more about all of our programs. I'm Yasmin Abutalib. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.